Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Rethinking where we are on rates, on oil, on bankers' pay, and on the Biden administration. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It was a week for taking stock as President Biden tried to reset his agenda after a year in the job. But I'm not going to give up and accept things as they are now. I call it a job not yet finished and admitted that he wasn't going to get all of that Build Back Better package, at least not all in one piece. I think we can break the package up, get as much as we can now, and come back and fight for the rest later. Oil markets took stock of where they are, sending the price of Brent crude up over $89 a barrel at one point, with talk of it maybe going to $100 a barrel. Here's Amrita Sen from Energy Aspects. I think the fact that demand is so strong and refining margins in particular uh, are still very, very robust, despite the crude rally we've seen, is a very promising sign. But when it comes to f- taking a fresh look, equities led the way, suffering the worst week since the pandemic roiled the markets, with tech shares leading the way down, helped by uneven earnings and the anticipation of higher rates. With the S&P down 5.6% for the week and the Nasdaq down another 7%, putting the index into correction territory. For all the talk about rate hikes, the 10-year bond yield actually went down two basis points to 1.76, while the dollar climbed nearly four-tenths of a percent. To help us sort out a very volatile week, we welcome now Sarah Ketterer. She's CEO of Causeway Capital, and Liz Ann Saunders. She's chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. So as a strategist, we've got to turn to you first, Liz Ann. What is going on here with the markets? Is it the rates anticipation? Is it the earnings? Is it something else? So there may be a little bit of, of a tie-in to earnings just in terms of the, the companies that haven't uh, beaten 
meet expectations have gotten hit a little bit more. But I think there are bigger picture issues here. It's a combination of the, the Fed having moved from very loose policy to tighter monetary policy, whether or not they, what they will start to do with rate hikes, uh, ending tapering, and then potentially moving to QT is the elixir for what ails us in terms of the inflation problem, which in turn is putting downward pressure on growth. And I just think you have a re-rating going on and certainly a bit of a, excuse the term, puking of, of some of the higher spec, lower quality segments of the market. So, Sarah, a puking, a technical term I hadn't heard before, but, but, <laughs> but what are you seeing as an investor? What are, what are you seeing there? What are the opportunities? What are the real risks out there in the marketplace right now? Well, the market is certainly rewarding certain areas, such as energy and financials, uh, banks, uh, insurance stocks. But it's, and value indices are outperforming growth by a wide margin. And this is just three weeks into the year. But if you look beneath that, the, as Lizanne noted, there definitely is pain associated with the extremely high valuation stocks. But not all the very low valuation stocks are doing well. Again, the market seems to be rewarding those associated with um, rising commodities. And the financials, maybe the value indices are pulling up some of the financials. They have some, I think, serious headwinds. But the area that might have the greatest amount of upside as the market begins to discern the winners and losers in this as we move toward post-pandemic will be those that were most badly affected by COVID. And there's a whole range of those stocks that have outperformed thus far and should continue to do so as the year progresses. Yeah, and David, I think what Sarah said is absolutely right with regard to sort of the push and pull of energy and financials and then the relationship that that has with the value indexes. But what's also interesting is a lot of times when people talk about growth versus value and value doing well, they're thinking about it at the index level. But even in a sector like technology, over the past few months, those stocks within tech that screen well on value characteristics like free cash flow yield, um, dividend yield, are the ones that are outperforming, whereas the stocks within tech that have negative earnings are the ones getting hammered. So even within, call it growthier segments of the market, uh, the value-oriented stocks are the ones that are doing better. Yeah, we even see this within semiconductors. You can see a, an incredibly expensive semiconductor stock like an NVIDIA <clears throat> underperform a, a, maybe a less expensive stock in memory. So the distinction is happening right before our eyes. And it's a, it's a reason to be grounded portfolio-wise in reasonably valued, higher quality companies. Lizanne, insofar as there's uncertainty in the market right now, are we going to get some help from the Fed next week? We're going to get another FOMC ruling. So it, it'll be an interesting meeting. I don't expect anything um, particularly formal in terms of what they're going to do. They're not going to start to raise interest rates. Maybe in the statement they give a little bit more color about uh, tapering. But there's no question that during the press conference, I'm sure Jerome Powell is going to be peppered with questions about the span of time between tapering and QT, whether or not they're going to have to act with a faster pace or a lot of chatter today might they have to do 50 basis points in the early stages versus only 25 so I don't expect much of any of that to be in the statement but given that every FOMC meeting has a press conference those these days I think are even more interesting than what we first hear at two o'clock eastern and what we can't this is so interesting that the fed nor can the bank of england or the european central bank they can't ignore what's right in front of their face which is inexorable wage 
increases that every company we talk to and companies we don't talk to, we just read transcripts, they are facing wage inflation and wage inflation begets more. So wage rises beget more wage rises, which was what makes inflation somewhat difficult to eradicate. So central banks may very well be behind the ball here. Thank you so very much to Liz Ann Saunders of Charles Schwab and Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital Management. Coming up, Bank of America Chair and CEO on the future of digital banking. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The move into digital was a big part of the earnings announcements of the big banks this season, with projections of large investments dampening profit expectations in the near term. Bank of America Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan has made digital a priority for years now, and he's not backing off, seeing it as a major component of the bank's future. In the broadest strokes, we are a high-touch, high-tech company, so digital is part of the strategy, but it has to be incorporated with our relationship management businesses, think the private bank or Merrill or the commercial bank or uh, uh, the trading businesses. So, and also all our branches, three or 400,000 people come to our branches. So it's a combined strategy, but why digital is so important, it's from the customer interface, it's from the how employees uh, can work together and then how the customers can receive the, uh, the goods and services, how they buy them, how they interact with us. So it makes us tremendously efficient and a great client experience, which is a pretty good thing. 
There's a lot of talk right now about particularly the big banks investing in digital. I know you've been investing for some time. I think your number is around $3.5 billion a year. Is it as steady as you go? Do you expect that to continue into the future or ramp up? Well, it, it's always changing as to what we spend it on. It's a, a gross amount of money, which is a pretty good size amount of money. So th when people talk about $3.5 for us, that means literally incremental new products and services and new capabilities. So it's a lot of money. To run the platforms, another 10 or $12 billion, it just goes on every day. But what are we investing in? Greater capabilities. So Erica, it, to our consumer clients, you know, is huge. But we can keep increasing the functionality. So year over year, we had a fourfold increase in the fourth quarter of 20 versus 21 of people using Erica, not because Erica it had a growth in customers, but really came from people using it more and more. Or in Zelle, getting it uh, more easily accessible through a, a widget. It's called. Those are the types of things we're doing. And then on the the institutional side, Cash Pro, which is the way companies move money, 240% more engagements by customers. They can see everything in a, in a portal type app as opposed to a bunch of different systems. These are just core executions we drive through the platform. I believe you passed a, a roadmap, Mark, uh, this actually quarter in Zelle actually having more transactions than your checking accounts do. I believe I read that. Uh, if true, give us a sense overall in your business. Will that continue to progress? I mean, at some point, does digital eat the entire bank? Well, so what happened with Zelle is we, we keep track of the checks written by our customers. So uh, you sitting down and writing a check out and handing, you know, putting in the mail to pay a bill or to hand it to somebody, that's down 24% of the last couple of years. And Zelle's been growing 50 to 100% a year. So the numbers of transactions by Zelle is actually exceed the number of checks written by our consumer customers. That was a milestone because it shows you what's really happening is that Zelle is eating into those low balance checks. And so if you look at a dollar amount of checks written, not the number of transactions, the dollar amount's actually up a little bit. So less checks of higher amounts to you know, $2,000 checks versus $20 checks. And those low checks are being taken over by Zelle, which is good because it's easier for the clients to move money to each other. It's easy, instead of giving your, your son or daughter a, a check, David, you know, you just Zelle them the money. And, and, and the volume of Zelle now exceeds Venmo overall in the industry. And I think we're basically equal to Venmo in terms of transactions on a quarterly basis. So we're driving that through, but it's really convenient. But that is a big milestone to think that what you and I grew up with, David, is the way to get money out of the bank was to write a check and hand it to somebody, and then they could negotiate that check, has now gone to where you can just say, give me your cell phone number and you pay, and that's pretty good. It's extraordinary development, certainly for somebody of my age. That's right, Brian. Uh, give me a sense as you look at the digital strategy going forward, how much of this is basically doing a form of the business you've been doing? For example, Zelle replacing checks, as opposed to actually moving into new businesses, potentially with new customers. Well, I think if you if you look on the wealth management business, the financial advisory team we have at Merrill and the private bankers we have, they're core to what we do for clients. But if you think about what happened during the pandemic, the ability for us to get information to clients and deliver our insights to clients through, you know, through Zoom and WebEx and other types of, of meetings allowed us to get out to clients in a very intimate setting, one-to-one, -one, but through the, through the screen many more times. So you enabled your reach of those teammates. But behind the scenes, also just think of the investment pro products. Like our, our Life Events investment product has 7 million users now who are loading in a financial plan, a life event plan for them, and it keeps them on uh, you know, on par and moving forward on, on t task, showing them what's happening. If they say this much, they want to say for this purpose, what are their priorities? You know, is that a new product? No, an advisor did that for years. But is it an enablement to let the advisor to add more value to the insight and knowledge they have as opposed to putting the stuff in a financial planning module or doing calculations on spreadsheets? So, you know, as you think about these, yes, yeah, some are very new products. Zelle's a new way to move money. 
Others are digital embodiments of old products, but allow you to have reach and access and capabilities far different. And that's pretty fun and interesting. Are there customers that you will reach through digital that you would never have reached through Bank of America? Or is it basically that customer base that, of course, you're always trying to grow? Yeah, we, well, you know, we have basic things. We have more to do, we can do with every customer because we have the best capabilities of anybody in the market. And if a customer simply does, you know, has a product with us and does something with somebody else, we're like, we're not serving them well because we're the best, therefore they should do it with us. So that's our basic principle. But on the other hand, we can gather customers. So if you think about it in the, uh, in, in the consumer side, especially as we've been going into new markets, say Pittsburgh or, or Columbus or Cleveland, Cincinnati or Salt Lake or Denver, or Minneapolis that we've opened up in with branches. When we go in there, we go in digital first and we'll have 10, 20,000 checking accounts going before we ever open the first branch. So those customers can deal, you know, can work with us completely digitally and it works. And so, but we, we firmly believe it's a high touch, high tech. At some point, most customers on the consumer side come to the branch. All the relationship management customers, the core interface is through a person, uh, a financial advisor, a, a commercial banker, but enablement helps. And so you have to think about this as a, a combined strategy of high touch, high tech. So yes, we get customers digitally only, that happens all day long, but at the end of the day, what makes us special, we have the best digital capabilities, plus we have the physical capabilities with them. Uh, Brian, as you say, you've invested a lot of money, continue to invest a lot, you've made a lot of progress. At the same time, do you envision possibly a major acquisition in this area to really take you forward? Because you said the, the, the sky is unlimited and how far you can go with digital. So we've done, major acquisition would be off the table probably in a lot of ways because it just the does a business model uh, work with each other. But we have done an acquisition like in healthcare uh, technology space. We did something to enable the payment side. So around payments, we bought back our joint venture uh, on the merchant side a couple years ago. That was a $2 billion transaction. And now we've put $300 million in a new system to drive that. So we're always going to make acquisitions which complement our behaviors and also partner with companies or complement our capabilities and partner with companies. But the reality is, is you know, we have 2.7 billion digital interactions in our consumer business last quarter. Mm. We have a huge business. We have 54 million digital customers uh, at, that are, are credited and 41 million were active. You know, we, 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 we need to always be looking at what capabilities we need, and sometimes that's partner with providers and ideas that come in. But the reality is, is acquiring more customers is, is not what we're after right now. Right, what we're after right now is driving the usage and the capabilities and people understanding what they can get from Bank of America's digital capabilities across the whole platform. That was Brian Moynihan, Chair and CEO of Bank of America. Coming up, how big is the semiconductor shortage problem? How long will it last? And how can we fix it? We hear from the former head of Qualcomm, Paul Jacobs. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Everybody's talking about it, the shortage of microchips. Whether you make cars like Mary Barra of GM. We saw significant impact with the semiconductor shortage last year. I would say every quarter it gets a little bit better, but we're not through it yet. Uh, there still is work to do. Or you make heating and air conditioning equipment like Dave Gitlin of Carrier. We actually um, don't have the kind of buying power with the chip OEMs that maybe some of some other folks in other industries do, but I can tell you that we have met directly 
with the CEOs of major chip manufacturers. We've done unique arrangements with them that we've never done in the past. And it's not just the buyers of chips feeling the pressure. The producers, like Kurt Sievers of NXP Semiconductors, are feeling every bit as much pressure. The entire semiconductor supply chain is under pretty heavy stress these days. Even Fed Chair Jay Powell's job has gotten harder because of the chip shortage, which he says is partly what's leading to the inflation we're seeing. People want to buy cars. Car, car makers can't make any more cars because there are no semiconductors. So that's, that's never happened. So what's the solution? Congress is working on a CHIPS Act to get more investment in onshore production, which Congresswoman Haley Stevens of Michigan says is critical for the auto industry in her district. Here in automotive land, one of the things that you cannot escape from our, is the chip shortage. We have got to pass the CHIPS Act. But whatever the solution, just about everyone agrees that it's going to take time. Whether you're in the market to buy. We still think it's going to linger into the first half of this year, and we should be farther out of it by the end of this year. Or in the market to sell. This is going to get better through next year, but I don't think everything is going to be in balance from a supply-demand perspective through the end of next year. And we turn now to someone who really knows this chip industry well. He is Paul Jacobs. He's now the chairman and CEO of XCOM, and he did for many years run Qualcomm. So, Paul, thanks so much for being with us. First of all, give us a sense of how big a problem this is. Can you put your arms around how big a problem the shortage of semiconductors is right now? Well, as you know, everything's being digitized. And so semiconductors are in almost every product we use, from home appliances to cars, and now even more so with electric vehicles. They're in the cloud. They're in our smartphones. They're in just so many things in our lives. And what's happened is that we had uh, some shocks in the system, which became big because we had this notion of being very efficient, just-in-time manufacturing, lean manufacturing. So you didn't hold a lot of inventory on hand. And when there were flips in the supply, which happened because of COVID, these things spiraled out of control and became very, very big issues in, in, the, uh, in the supply chain. And so you're seeing for big companies, some of them are able to get uh, their components still. But for smaller companies, uh, some of them are having a very hard time, long lead times, some, sometimes up at as much as a year of waiting to get a, a part that you need. Uh, people have been raising prices. Uh, so all of these things are affecting sort of that innovation economy that the world depends on. When you talk about just-in-time, did we underinvest globally? Did we underinvest in the capacity to design and manufacture chips? I think that uh, there's a lot of concentration in it, and there's only a few suppliers, so there's not a lot of diversity in the in the supply chain. But I think maybe to explain it a little bit simpler, if we think about it, something close to home like toilet paper, when you think about it, there was supply of toilet paper and a pretty constant demand of toilet paper, maybe a little bit more because people were working from home, but you didn't buy a lot of toilet paper at your house because you figured you could go down to the store and get it. Now what happened, people got nervous whether they could actually go down to the store and get it. So they started putting more at home. They started buying more. And the system wasn't set up for that. So there was this surge in demand and that meant that there were shortages. And that is part of the problem with the chip business. 
the, the supply is there under normal constraints. But now with these things that have happened because of COVID and very interesting things happened because at first the demand dropped. Everybody thought the whole economy was slowing down, so demand dropped. Then the demand surged because all of this work from home and all the other other things. So there was this ripple in the demand side. The supply side was basically there, but it's kind of like this toilet paper situation. Now people who are have the ability are trying to hold more inventory so that they don't get hit by these ups and downs in the process. I would say, though, that it is important to build more semiconductor uh, fabs, and it's important not just for the making of the chips, but also the packaging of the chips, the testing of the chips. But even beyond that, it's all the little components that go around it, the boards. I mean, we really, uh, you know, we have an issue where there were very few suppliers. There was a broad range of, of products out there that, uh, that and components that, that people needed. And all of this led to, you know, a lack of resiliency, you know, a lack of ability to adapt to these big shocks that might happen in the system. Paul, this has been very helpful. Thank you so very much. That's Paul Jacobs. He's the chairman and CEO of XCOM. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're going to wrap up the week again this week with our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, welcome back. Good to have you here. We've talked about the Fed. We've talked about inflation. The Fed has said they're going to tighten because of the inflation you've been warning about for some time. We actually get a decision next week. What do you expect the Fed to do? I think they're going to be signaling the, uh, a tightening in March. I hope they'll be signaling... Uh, 
as rapid as possible and end uh, to QT. Uh, we got an economy that's looking like it's above the speed limit and it's going to have to slow down. And the Fed's got a very delicate operation now in uh, slowing it down. Uh, the delicacy of that operation is underscored by the turbulence in asset markets since the beginning of the year. It's underscored by the uh, softness in some kinds of measures of consumer sentiment and uh, consumer spending. But if we're going to have maximum employment and maximum growth uh, over time, uh, we're going to have to control the pace of the growth of uh, total incomes so that more of it can go into more employment and more output and less of it into inflation. Uh, Larry, as you look at the various indicators, uh, do you con are you concerned at all that maybe we're too complacent about the Fed's ability to do this? The markets, you just say, have been turbulent. They're reacting. At the same time, you look at the five-year, five years, they're still at like 2.12 percent, something like that. Uh, and also, the financial conditions have not really tightened much. Is that because we're just so confident the Fed can do this without really roiling people, or are we underestimating the size of the problem? I think the gravity of our situation is still uh, understated. While the term transitory has left the policymaker discourse, the idea of transitory inflation is still very fixed in their minds. There's still a belief that with very limited monetary actions that have not taken full effect, we will see inflation uh, slow to the 2% range by the end of the year. That certainly could happen, but it wouldn't be my bet given the tremendous tightness of labor markets, given increasing signs that China is going to be a source of bottlenecks for quite some time to come, given increasing concerns about uh, oil prices, given that there's a lot of housing inflation that still has to feed through the system, and given how remarkably low real interest rates uh, are, I don't think that it's the best bet that inflation is going to be coming down to the two, into the 2% range or the twos by uh, the end of the year. And so I think complacency is uh, not uh, appropriate. Uh, so, so, Larry, President Biden had a quite long, almost two-hour two uh, press conference this week. And in the course of that, he basically said it is the Fed's responsibility to do with inflation. He talked about the economy. What did you make of what President Biden had to say about his leadership of the economy? Look, I think President Biden is right to take pride in the fact that more people are employed than anyone would have expected on the day he took office despite uh, very substantial uh, disease uh, threats. Frankly, I can't understand for the life of me why the administration is so obsessed with meatpacking. Meatpacking is an entirely trivial and unimportant issue with respect to uh, inflation. It is inconceivable that tossing a billion dollars, as the Agriculture Department is, in the general direction of creating an extra meatpacking plant is a good use of taxpayers' money or is going to happen. So I don't understand why the President of the United States uh, keeps talking about that. I'm glad to see him recognize and emphasize the independence of uh, the central bank. And as I said on your show last week, uh, David, I very much hope that his new appointees to the Fed 
when they have their confirmation hearings, will take the opportunity to underscore their recognition that the most basic responsibility that the central bank has is a stable currency and price uh, stability and the avoidance of inflation. Uh, that's not something that's been in any of their writings uh, prior to this point. That doesn't mean they don't fully share the conviction, but I think it will be very important for them to articulate that and articulate how important they perceive that to have been in the nominating uh, process because ultimately credibility is about deeds as much as it's about words and the most important deeds the president has with respect to uh, the central bank are what he, are what he does uh, in terms of staffing. Uh, the central bank. Uh, so, Larry, when you talk about meatpacking, I naturally think about competition policy and antitrust law. You have something of a dispute, perhaps going with Paul Krugman, your former classmate, your friend, over the role of antitrust. And we've heard from President Biden and others that really antitrust enforcement is a key ingredient in fighting inflation. How big a difference do you really have on this subject? I'm not sure because I'm not sure what they really think. Should we have substantially enhanced antitrust in the United States? Yes. We absolutely should. Is it harmless and normal politics to take advantage of concern about high prices to drive political energy behind that competition policy? Yes. Does it make sense to suggest that antitrust policy can in any important way reduce uh, the inflation rate? over a horizon of a couple of years? No, that is not supported by uh, economic uh, science. I'm also worried uh, about the um, antitrust doctrines that some of the Biden appointees have uh, put forward. Lena Khan expressed uh, a concern that perhaps when two firms merge, and they're able to produce more efficiently with fewer people, that should not be counted as an efficiency. There's been a lot of talk about introducing considerations other than lower prices for consumers into antitrust, protecting small business competitors, for example. That kind of stuff is, frankly, promoting of higher prices and works in the wrong direction uh, with respect to inflation. Right. The most important things, thing we can do with respect to competition policy is accept lower-priced goods from abroad. Hmm. And resistance to protectionism, active yeah. uh, trade policy, those aren't things we hear about uh, from uh, the administration. So, yes, I am all for uh, competition policy. Yes, I think right. antitrust in our country has lagged, but it needs to be based on 
lower consumer prices. Larry, let me sneak in one more, if I could, here, please. A couple of weeks ago, we had an outrage of the week from you about uh, the patterns of investment from some of our public officials, whether at the Federal Reserve Board or up in, at, at, on, on Capitol Hill. We now have perhaps a development where the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, apparently has backed off of her resistance to a broad ban on that. What do you think should happen? I was glad to see it. I think we need to scale, scale any suggestion of impropriety by public officials um, out of our system. That means not trading in individual stocks. That also means uh, not hearing something and calling your broker to do anything, even selling mutual funds and uh, the like. People should be able to adjust their financial positions, but only well in advance so that there's a reassurance that insider information is not coming into it. And there should be rigorous rules in both the executive branch, the Federal Reserve, and uh, the Congress. And I think it's an area where it's appropriate for confidence uh, to look at things. So an outrage of the week that may be a little bit less outrageous going forward, we hope. Thank you so much to Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor on Wall Street Week. Thanks a lot. Finally, one more thought. Lions and tigers and bears and even hamsters. Oh my. Every one of us is dealing with COVID in one way or another, whether it's worrying about our hospitals or whether our kids can go to school or figuring out when we should go back into the office. But that's all about us. What about the other creatures that share the planet with us? What about the tigers and pumas and minks and yes, even the hamsters? Well, it turns out that a lot of them can get this virus too, and they don't even have the option of getting the vaccine, much less the booster. A year ago, it was a crisis over mink farming in Denmark, which brought the Danish prime minister to tears when she ordered millions of the little furry creatures destroyed. Now we learn that lions and pumas in a South African zoo have contracted COVID, apparently from the people who work there. Fortunately, they were treated and they recovered, which is more than we can say for the poor hamsters over in Hong Kong. China is pursuing a vigorous, some might say ruthless, policy of zero tolerance of COVID. So when a local pet shop worker, a customer, and 11 hamsters tested positive for the Delta variant, the Hong Kong government ordered all hamsters imported since December 22nd euthanized, despite the lack of really clear proof that humans can get COVID from hamsters. But there may be another way. Since the 18th century in a small village west of Madrid, on the eve of San Anton's day, they purify animals from disease. Well, how do they do it? They take a group of horses and ride them through bonfires, which may or may not date back to the days of the plague. And if it seems a bit medieval, then again, doesn't a lot of our response to this pandemic. It sure does for those poor hamsters. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.